0: Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Dispatches. If you're enjoying this podcast, or perhaps you're new here and you haven't already done so why not hit that little subscribe or follow button, whichever platform you're listening on right now. And also, if you like the content and you want to see more of it, then please consider supporting Left Foot Media at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia for as little as $1 a month. That's all it takes to ensure that more of this great content keeps happening. Starting next week, we are going to have patron-only episodes of this podcast, so special episodes that are available only to our patrons. And uh, another exciting development is that uh, a brand new Left Foot Media uh, website is in the development stage, and that'll be coming very soon. So a huge thank you to all of our patrons who have made that possible. Right, let's jump into today's topic. Will 7,000 New Zealanders die of COVID every year, even with high vaccination rates? Now, the reason I'm exploring this topic is is actually not by choice. I had a completely different conversation planned for today, but then the 1pm press conference in New Zealand happened yesterday and the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield and Sean Hendy appeared together in that press press conference and Sean Hendy presented his modelling, which claimed that even with a high vaccination rate in New Zealand, we would still face the likelihood of 7,000 deaths a year. And I want to talk about that and unpack that. Several of you actually asked me and said, look, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And so that's why today's episode is going to explore this, because I think there's some important things here that some people have missed uh, that I think are worth considering. So first of all, what I want to do on this episode is I want to look at the 7,000 claim and whether it stacks up, because I I think that it's questionable whether it does stack up or not. Uh, Secondly, believe it or not, despite that fact, I also then want to mount a defense of Sean Hendy. Um, because I think despite the fact that I think the prediction is wrong, I think he's doing some things that are right and very prudent and very good. And and I'll explain what that is. And I think it's worthy of, of defense, actually. Uh, thirdly, I want to talk about the political backtrack on this. And there was a massive backtrack. Within about eight hours, there was a huge backtrack on this whole claim of 7,000 deaths um, and, and why actually that's a problem. It's actually quite a problem what's happened here. And finally i want to finish with by highlighting what i think is probably the most important message of all in all of what's happened in uh, as a result of yesterday and and really what's been going on over the last couple of weeks but but that most important message of all i think is largely being ignored and it, it even again yesterday was another opportunity to really say well what's the real root problem here what are we doing to address it that that, that just seems to go unanswered and so That's, I think, where I want to land today. And I want to talk about, um, yeah, what I think we're missing in all of this. So first of all, let's look at the 7,000 deaths a year claim. And what I want to do is I want to read the article that came out on uh, stuff.co.nz last night where uh, Sean Hendy's modelling and his prediction was critiqued quite harshly by uh, someone else, another expert. So let me read from the article. A COVID-19 modeler says the new official model predicting 7,000 deaths with a 75% vaccination rate doesn't pass the plausibility test. COVID-19 modeler Rodney Jones, who has also provided modeling and advice to the government, said real-world experience in countries with reasonably high vaccination rates showed there was unlikely to be that many deaths and the government didn't need to scare New Zealanders into getting vaccinated. The government released the modelling from Te Punaha Matatini on Thursday, showing how many various vaccination rates would protect New Zealand. Sorry, showing how much various vaccination rates would protect New Zealand. It suggested that even with a vaccination rate of 80% of those aged 5 or over, or 75% of the whole country, New Zealand could still see close to 7,000 deaths a year from COVID 19 and an overloaded healthcare system. That is 140 deaths a week. This is a quote now. Singapore has had 11 deaths with just under 80% vaccinated over the last month, Jones said. Singapore has a similar population to New Zealand. By the way, I saw another article published yesterday which indicated that in actual fact uh, Singapore had 16 deaths last month but even with that I'll come back to that figure because I want to utilize it when I look at whether or not it seems like a legitimate suggestion so I'm going to use the 16 number which is higher um, you know just to be safer Um, the article carries on if you're going to use this model in this way it should be peer-reviewed by global experts it's absolutely unconvincing it really needs to be reworked. Now. I think these are valid critiques here. Uh, I th- yeah, I think it's absolutely right. If you're going to make these kind of things, the, and certainly if the government's going to trot this out, because what happened yesterday was the government made a very serious showing of this and effectively uh, all but said this is, you know, um, uh, infallible data. It's, it's you know, with a certain, there was a degree of certainty yesterday that this was the future that lay ahead for us. It, it certainly wasn't left up to chance. So well, this is just one option. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, and then there was a big political backtrack of that, of course. But um, if you're going to do that, then they're absolutely, this is correct. I think um, what Jones is saying here, that that there should actually be a proper testing and checking of the modelling before you go trotting it out in this way. Now, here, here's where uh, Hendy responds in the article. Hendy responded to the criticisms by noting New Zealand was different to other nations and the deaths under his model wouldn't happen uniformly across the year. He also said the base model had been peer-reviewed earlier in the year. Now, that's an interesting point to me, and I'm a layman. I don't understand that jargon, but it, if I'm interpreting it correctly, what he's saying is we had a a previous methodology that we used for our modelling earlier this year, so quite conceivably well before Delta hit, uh, and we're using that same methodology, but and and that methodology was peer-reviewed. Okay, but, but surely, again, as a layman, if the situation on the ground changes and you have all these new factors in play, or you have different factors, different scenario, all these other things that are part of the mix, then surely you would need to get your this thing uh, peer reviewed again, if you like, before you go using it in this way. It, it seems to me that that, like I said, I could be misunderstanding what he's saying here, but and, and and maybe I don't understand. Maybe maybe it is actually okay the base model to keep using like that. But it, it does seem like that that it it needs a bit more scrutiny before you would start making this bold claim, like was made yesterday. Uh, Hendy says this, it does use New Zealand specific data on health outcomes. We will look like a country that can be, sorry, we look like a country that can be hit more because of our older population and Maori Pacifica population, Hendy said. So obviously that wouldn't apply to Singapore, um, but it would apply here. Hendy went on to say this, there was considerable uncertainty about how much the Pfizer vaccine stopped the virus spreading rather than stopping making people sick and changes to that could change the model seriously there is lots of scope for that modeling to change so even that's sort of interesting because yesterday there wasn't that kind of uncertainty presented there was a bold a much bolder declaration around all of this and what the predictions were yet even here now uh, 8 hours later hindi sort of saying well you know the scope for this to change which again raises the question, why was it wheeled out yesterday the way it was and, and presented in sort of such an infallible way? So let's just have a look at the 7,000 claim before I, I mount a defense of, of, of um, Sean Hendy, because I, I don't think everything about this is bad or wrong. And, and there's some things that are praiseworthy here. So first of all, uh, what he's claiming is 7,000 deaths a year. That would be 135 deaths per week. In New Zealand of COVID, it, it that's pretty serious. And even if you account for other factors, then uh, which, by the way, is one of the things that's praiseworthy here—that he's trying to actually specify um, and, and and his modelling. But even if you account for other factors here, it seems that that still wouldn't um, put us wildly. Uh, you know, miles and miles away from where Singapore is with a similar sort of population to us. So even if you account for Mori and Pacifica populations, um, and I'm assuming population density has to be considered in all of this as well, because we know that population density is really quite a um, disastrous thing when it comes to, well, you know, virus spreading in general, but COVID and this COVID outbreak. So the thing, though, it seems to me is that even if you account for those factors, would we really be as as bad as seven thousand deaths a year? And I'm just not convinced of that. Again, I'm a layman, but let, let me just do some of the basic maths here to sort of put this into perspective. Let's say if we start from the the Singapore has had sixteen deaths this past month, and, and let's say that that um, we were New Zealand was actually when you factored in all those other things, New Zealand was going to be ten times worse than Singapore would be. I'm not convinced it would be, but let's say that our death rate in our situation would be 10 times worse than Singapore's. So we had 160 deaths a month now. That would still be only 1920 deaths a year. That's about four times our annual influenza death rate. We have an average of 500 people who die every year in this country of influenza. And so that's about four times that amount. And it's 10 times worse than Singapore. That, though, is still uh, not even one third of the 7,000 deaths that this model is predicting. So let's go even worse. Let's say it's 20 times worse than Singapore, which would be, what, 320 deaths a month and 3,840 deaths a year. That's still now just touching the halfway point of what Sean Hendy his, his claiming in his modelling, it, it, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. I I can't understand why New Zealand would be 20 times, let alone 10 times worse than Singapore in its outcomes. I mean, sure, even if you account for factors and say that we could, and I think there are some things here that could make us, uh, could put us at a disadvantaged position, would it be as bad as that? And even if you factored, even if you said, well, it was going to be 20 times worse, that's still only half of the total death toll of what is being predicted in this model. So it doesn't quite seem to add up here. And, and that's why I think that sort of peer review and expert scrutiny would be really essential here to ascertain that things are not being overinflated, that mistakes are not being made. I, one thing I discovered yesterday morning that I didn't know until now is that um, Sean Hendy is actually a, a professor of physics uh, I always thought he was in the immunology space because he's quoted so often in the media and he is uh, often referred to um, as a colleague of Susie Wiles and he is uh, obviously at the same university, University of Auckland, and he is being used by the government as a as a sort of modeler in the space. But in actual fact, physics is his specialty. Now, he's a very clever man by all accounts and, and very astute in that field. But I, I think it means that, you know, there should be an extra level of caution that would be required here that, you know, that experts in the field of you know epidemiology and immunology and things like that would bring to the fore here and would bring to bear and, and help to actually ascertain that whether or not you're accounting for all the things you need to account for. That, it, you know, it's another word it's not just a pure mathematical model that you're doing, that you're actually factoring in the right figures and the right data and all that sort of stuff. Now, having said that, that the data does seem to be off. I want to now do something that might seem a little bit counterintuitive on this, and and that is I want to actually mount a defense of Sean Hendy because I think despite the fact that it does seem to me instinctually that that number is just woefully, it's wildly inaccurate, it, it seems that he's actually doing something here instinctually that's correct and there's a prudence to what he's doing. And what he's doing is he's saying a couple of things. here. Number one, he's saying New Zealand has different factors. So he's saying you need to be prudent um, and not just compare yourself country to country. And by the way, that's been one of the great problems throughout this pandemic, certainly from a popular and a media perspective, has been this just a sort of brute force comparison, you know, between New Zealand, for example, where we are, but just between any country where people happen to live and other countries and their experience of COVID. And that's not a really helpful way of doing things at all. So one country might have had a much better experience of COVID because of factors that are not present in your nation. So uh, that's why comparing yourself to that nation is not necessarily going to give you the same outcome and vice versa. Some nations have had really bad. And, and generally what I've seen as a general norm is it's been, it's happened both ways, but more often in the media, you've seen the scaremongering around the worst case scenario countries and then comparing New Zealand to that. say so this will happen here. But what that does is, is it's just a raw brute force comparison that fails to actually take into account the specifics and the factors that, you know, and that each population and again, like population density is one of those things that seems to be a factor that, that this is why it seems it can vary wildly from place to place. And there's lots of other factors as well that play into it. And so there's an instinct here that I think is good and correct that uh, in what Sean Hendy is doing here. Here's the other thing that I think is really important. Let me quote again from the article. Andy said there was considerable uncertainty about how much the Pfizer vaccine stopped the virus spreading rather than stopping make, making people sick. And changes to that could change the model seriously. Now that's interesting because this is I think this is really, really important. What what he's doing here is something that others are not doing. He's saying that the vaccine strategy is not a panacea, that these current vaccines are not a panacea, but a lot of people are talking about them as a panacea, as if they are the magic silver bullet that will just solve everything, as if they're foolproof and robust. And what's being forgotten, and I've seen this in a lot of media on this, a lot of social commentary on social media, conversations with others, is people who don't seem to have realized or understood that like that point he's making here, that in actual fact, it seems that you can still transmit the virus, even if you are vaccinated and fully vaccinated. And that has profound implications for a whole lot of factors. In fact, next week, I'm going to do an episode like I was going to do today, actually, but we'll do it next week now, where I'll talk about why this factor is actually an important one and uh, in, in, in why it would make a forced vaccination campaign immoral. Um, and so so he's actually acknowledging this he's doing something that others are not doing and I think that's really really praiseworthy. having said that though, what we saw yesterday was just um, a massive political backtrack over a period of about eight hours it went from the government putting on all this pomp and ceremony and and, and putting this forward as you know this is the future that lies ahead unless you get vaccinated. And so there's definitely a scaremongering element in all of this. And we actually saw this. Um, It's not just the 7,000 total, but it's also some of the comments the prime minister made. Um, And she uh, talked about, for example, let, let me quote here. If there is an unvaccinated person, Delta is very good at finding that person eventually. And then the next one, and then the next one until it's quickly found a lot of people and potentially overwhelmed the health system. Of course, what's loaded in that statement, by the way, from the prime minister, is that uh, again, the vaccines don't actually guarantee that you won't be transmitting because viruses don't just find people. This is not a virus that exists on surfaces. And it doesn't lurk or hanging around in the park, just looking for people and, and, and going, oh, are you vaccinated? Are you not vaccinated? What it does is it transmits itself from person to person. And then someone in the chain happens to be unvaccinated. So in other words, you know, being vaccinated, again, it's not the great panacea, but there's a, there's a certain, you know, you better get vaccinated if you want to be safe. Then She then followed that up immediately after that statement by saying this. Now, if you're someone who has been vaccinated, you might think that doesn't matter, but it does children can't be vaccinated. It will reach them. We've seen it reach them in this outbreak. And then she carried on. That's all she said about children. Now, what's missing from that statement is some important context, that children are still, thank goodness, the safest demographic of all to get COVID. Unless they have existing comorbidities, they are the safest uh, demographic of all. And what happens is for children is they the general norm is for the overwhelming majority is they get like the symptoms of a mild cold and they get over it very quickly and their low COVID rates we talked about this in a previous previous episode their long sorry their long COVID rates are very very low um, and so th- this 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 was definitely a piece of um, you know Kabuki political theatre if you like some scaremongering around children you know it's it's a very powerful tool a lot of parents out there and a lot of them are frightened by that and it seems to me there's no doubt that the the PR planners have have decided that in their propaganda messaging around this that they will definitely keep hitting that point about children you know don't you hear about the children it's it's an old political tactic but in this case it's um yeah, well, thus far anyway, that could change, of course, with uh, development of the development of, of the virus as it progresses throughout human history. But at this stage, they are the same safest demographic. So when you couple that with the 7,000 number and, the, you know, the talk about the unvaccinated and it hunting you down, it's uh, there's definitely a, a tone of... Of of you know quit get vaccinated because um you know this thing's really really bad the, the sort of the scaremongering tactic and by the way I'm not surprised to see this tactic because this is the tactic that is used around climate change this really extreme alarmism you get around what's going to happen the pre- predictions about what will happen and it, it, it just as it's it's as it's been shown there this is not a good thing uh, the, the the prime minister yesterday I think betrayed uh, an instinct that she has shown previously just one month ago. In fact, a New Zealand Herald article that was published on the 24th of August, and it was that same day, she spoke to the AM morning show. And this is what the article says. Ardern told the AM show she had seen such a range of modelling about the number of cases that she did not want to speculate. She said the numbers changed each day. And so this was modelling about how many cases would there be in this outbreak. And her response there and in her instinct was, it was good and it was prudent. It was the correct one. That principle is important. You, that, that, that modeling is, is limited. And so what you need to do is actually, you don't speculate, you don't, and, and you actually treat the modeling with a lot of caution. And that's the right instinct to have. I, I saw another article where she talked about as well, that different modelers were saying different things about what would happen. That's the right instinct. You know, different models with different data inputted and different methodologies can get wildly varying outcomes. We know this. We've known this from day one of this pandemic. Remember when the, 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 the Imperial College stuff up last year and things were wrong there. And so that instinct was correct. But then yesterday that went completely out the window. And instead we got this um, the, the sort of the climate alarmism playbook came into play where they, they applied the climate climate alarmism model, you know, the scaremongering stuff, to uh, the, the question of, of, you know, people getting vaccinated and you should get vaccinated. And it was, it, this was a massive political walk back. Don't underestimate how much of a walkback this was. Um, Hendy, Sean Hendy was actually in the press conference on the podium. It's, it's very rare for people to be brought into that press conference. He, he was zoomed in, but there's a big screen right in the middle between Bloomfield and, and Ardern, and he's on that screen. He's there the whole time. He he is invited to give his presentation. It is presented to the country with this, this sort of pomp and ceremony and officialdom that clearly indicates this is the government position. This is the thing. This is a, there's a certain absoluteness about what's being said here and the way it's being presented. And and it was very much, you know, yeah, it was absolutely, you know, quite a serious and official way, it wasn't just the prime minister or Bloomfield saying things like, oh, we've seen models that could indicate this or could indicate that, or, you know, someone said this and maybe that could apply. This was presented as effectively like a fait accompli. This is what will happen. As I said, that the sort of the, the, the scaremongering playbook came out here. But then eight hours later, as you saw in this article, that was walked back Completely. Let let, let me quote to you what the Prime Minister said in this article last night that was published when she was asked. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said she would use modelling as one of the tools for the health response, but would also be looking at the experience of other countries. And she's quoted here, These are tools and pieces of information that help inform our decision, but it's not a matter of this is the singular pathway and here's the inevitable outcome. Dern said. Well, that's not how this was presented yesterday. Last night, she's saying the correct thing, uh, which actually means yesterday's press conference should have never happened with that modelling presented like that. It just shouldn't have happened. That That's effectively an admission, really, that that shouldn't have been done, because quite clearly, the impression that gave was that this is the inevitable outcome and that this is the pathway that we are tracking down. Otherwise, why would the government give its official seal of approval to this modelling to such a degree that they get the modeler to stand on the podium with them, virtually, and to give a speech and present that modelling? That's exactly what was being done yesterday. But now all of a sudden, by eight hours later, it's been completely walked back. Now, this is a problem. Because politicized scaremongering is a recipe for disaster. If you want a population to actually listen to what you're saying and buy into it and get on board with it, politicized scaremongering is a recipe for disaster. Especially in times like this, credibility matters a lot. And if you cry wolf and people look at you crying wolf, then what's going to happen? They're going to, well, this this is the boy or the girl. This is the government that cried wolf. And, and, and when you actually turn up and you've got something serious to say that's real and important, people are more likely to ignore you because previously they know you've cried wolf. So what would have been much better yesterday was not to do what happened. Whoever strategized and came up with that concept and I can just imagine what would have happened. So the modeling was probably presented at a meeting and suddenly someone's brain went into high gear, octane, high octane overload and said, oh, man, we, if we presented this to the public, that would actually motivate them to get vaccinated. This could really help us. And And, and it seems the thought process probably didn't go much beyond that because, as I said, he was brought in and it was given the official seal of approval, and it absolutely was presented in such a way to give a very clear impression that this was inevitable. Like I said, that was completely walked back eight hours later. That's why you don't do things like this. That's why in the climate change issue, there has been a loss of credibility in that arena because of these absurd alarmist predictions that have been made which didn't come to pass. And yet people are still making them, and they wonder why a lot of people in the population are sort of quietly skeptical about all of this um, you know in, in the case of um, the you know the alarmism around climate change is because they've seen enough of these predictions now that haven't come and they know that these are really on the extreme ends of the spectrum and what and what's being said doesn't even for a layperson doesn't quite make sense you know people know for example that you know that climates do change over periods of time and that and that you have you um, you know, shoreline erosion, that's something that's always been happening. And and so, you know, when all of these things sort of are being co-opted in a very alarmist way, though, people are, are get get a little bit suspicious. And so you don't want that at a time like this. You actually want credibility. And the way to keep your cre- credibility is to be measured and humble in the information, not to propagandise, not to try and scaremonger people. To, to have a humility about you to accept and admit limitations and never ever to rashly and boldly step out and and present data and information like this in this way that, that this was a mistake here's the thing though like, to finish up with i think the most important messages in, in all of this is actually maybe being missed or ignored here there's, there's kind of two messages so so number one message that's really really important that seems to have been missed by a lot of people is that vaccines are not a panacea and that's what Handy was actually saying, and he's right about that. Then the the data at this stage does not paint a particularly rosy picture. It doesn't certainly doesn't give us certainty here, and so what that means is if vaccines are not the panacea. In other words, they don't actually stop transmission. Uh, they're not particularly effective in that space, even though they will reduce your chances of going into a hospital or um, a dying of COVID. The fact that they can still allow the, the, the virus to move freely about the population is, that's a problem. That's an issue. That's a, that's a flaw. Um, it, it, what it means is it has a bearing on things like um, vaccine passports. Vaccine passports are effectively useless because what do they tell you? All they tell you is uh, an irrelevant piece of information. Oh, this person has had a vaccine. That, what that what that doesn't tell you though is that this person is safe to be around which is what the, surely the whole point of a vaccine passport is and also any sort of judgment and judgmentalism that's going on around vaccine versus you know vaccinated versus unvaccinated it's kind of the, the, you know that these things are not really justified uh, the, these silly claims this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated it's a terrible and uh divisive piece of propaganda um, that fails to reflect the full truth of the situation. Uh, and, you know, it, when the tr- actual truth of the matter is that, um, and, and I've seen several articles now indicating this, that what you could well have is a situation where the vaccinated, two interesting things are happening. One is the vaccinated, because they're getting milder versions of COVID, they don't, they're don't they not taking it as seriously. They're not realizing it often. They're wandering around actually shedding COVID to lots more people than previously would have happened. The other thing that's interesting, I haven't heard a lot of talk about yet, but is the theory around or, or the, the acknowledged issue of risk replacement where um, people uh, discover or develop a new safety measure and the safety measure has a sort of a counterintuitive knock-on effect. So, for example, when you know you put seatbelts in a car and you make them mandatory, you think, oh, great, cars are safer and there should be less deaths. What happens is you start to see a spike in, in um, road-related fatalities after that point and uh, and as the experts in this point out, well, what happens is people think, oh, I'm safe now, so they start taking new risks that they wouldn't take before when they didn't think they were as safe. And so you're you actually get you know fatalities and problems that happen because people are overestimating. Uh, the level of protection that something is giving to them, and so th- it's quite conceivable that you've you get people uh, once you get a um, vaccination and and probably also higher rates of vaccination, people possibly start taking more risks that they wouldn't have previously taken, and they start p- getting a bit looser with some of the things that can actually help here, uh, and so that creates a situation where things spread a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, so that's point number one. Uh, point number two is this, and this is the really important one for me. Is and we've heard this with other things that have been that have come to the fore over the last uh, couple of days and couple of weeks. Is that the real root issue here, and the thing that desperately needs attention and addressing, but which is not happening, is we need to fix the healthcare system. We actually need better strategies here for endemic COVID. Our government has all but admitted it's now endemic here, but they they, they don't seem to have moved particularly quickly. So, so for example, we need better MIQ strategies. This whole thing of MIQs in the middle of cities, in your your biggest cities, right in the middle of the city, it was always a bad idea. And and that, that should have been addressed long ago the whole notion of you know utilizing airfields and sports fields and race courses and and the the plan i saw at one point of of um using um camper vans which obviously initially weren't being used in lockdowns anyway but using camper vans um as you know space them out and 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 you you put people in those and and they're away from the main population i mean we always understood this My ancestors arrived on a boat called the Woodlark and that boat, because it had, um, was it yellow fever, scarlet fever, that the the boat had to be put into quarantine when it arrived in New Zealand. They kept the people on the boat away from the main population. Uh, Here in Canterbury, we have, um, uh, was it, uh, I was going to say Rapapa Island, I think it's Quail Island. Um, is the one that I, the right one we've got a couple of ones but quail island which um was a quarantine facility people would come into littleton on the boats that's the quarantine facility you don't bring them onto the mainland so things like that um more and better rapid testing technologies where are they where are they that 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 help a lot early intervention therapies um obviously some of that's improved but it's sort of it's hard to gauge, I mean, and maybe I could be wrong about this, but it sort of, it doesn't quite feel like that's been given the high prioritization that it should have been. There's sort of a fixation with lockdowns and vaccines, but well, what about it? We start fixating on things like, you know, actual therapeutics that take the hard edge off COVID so that, you know, when people get it for the vast majority, it just becomes a a cold or a flu that you can get over without the hard edge and the danger associated with it. But most important of all is that we need to better equip our healthcare system for endemic COVID. It's it's just astounding to me that that we're not we don't seem to be actually really honing in on that point. Our ICU capacity is now worse than what it was last year. That's that's such a pivotal thing in all of this. The notion of COVID-only hospitals was being talked about. These are the sorts of things that it seems we need to actually fixate on, but we're not. And, and yesterday, that, to me, that seems to be a key message out of this from yesterday, but it just, it seems largely ignored. And, you know, I think of what, what was going on just a couple of months ago with Andrew Little in a standoff with the nurses and not giving them just an appropriate pay rises, to, to this is this is the same government that was doing this just a couple of months ago. And now there's a realization again, when we desperately need the nurses and the healthcare system and the doctors, oh, then all of a sudden we'll start talking about them as being our heroes and we talk them up. But again, where is the actual concrete practical solutions and, and um, addressing of this problem around fixing the deficiencies in the healthcare system? Now, I'm not a utopianist. So I know you're never going to get a perfect healthcare system and there's never going to be a utopian version of that. But there's certainly things that need to be addressed and some good, smart, sharp thinking brought to play here to say, okay, well, we need to start directing funding in this direction and we need to start directing some smart minds in this direction and learning from overseas experience about what we could do in New Zealand to actually better equip and prepare our people in the healthcare sector for this. That seems to be the most important and pressing issue right now, as far as I'm concerned, and yet it doesn't really seem to be getting much airplay at all. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. As I said, please, if you're not already a subscriber, whatever platform you're listening on, make sure that you hit that subscribe button before you depart. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash left foot media. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches.